Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 22. Welcome back. Please follow me on Twitter and on my Facebook page, both at Cunning of Geist. In the previous episode 21, we discussed Marshall McLuhan and his theory that we have moved from a visually dominated left brain cultural environment to one of the printed word, which is a right brain oral auditory world brought by the electronic revolution, the world we now live in, the global village. And we have become more dominated by tribal customs as opposed to the individualism of the previous age. And that was all in the last episode. In this episode, we're going to go further into this and talk about morality and ethics and how this relates to this, uh, this shift, how the um, individual print culture resulted in a condition of moral relativism, and how the, um, the new tribal culture is bringing back morals in a big way. That's a short summary of what we're going to be talking about. But first, let's, let's explore the difference between morals and ethics in a little more detail. There is not really a clear-cut difference between the words morals and ethics. You can look them up in the dictionary, and they, um, most, most sources say that there is, there is plenty of overlap. Let's deal first with ethics. There appears to be a, a general consensus that ethics tend to be thought of more as a set of rules that govern how a society or how a profession should act, which results in, in fairness, a level playing field. Now, something can be unethical even if it's not illegal. There's a difference between ethics and, and the law. For example, it is unethical for a therapist to talk about a patient to others. It's not illegal, but it goes against the professional ethics of therapists. It is unethical for a doctor to recommend a treatment that will result in them making more money if a less costly treatment would be medically preferred. Some say business ethics is an oxymoron. But businesses are embracing ethics as never before, such as revamping the workplace environment, creating um, opportunities for whistleblowing, having more truth in advertising, and accepting more social responsibility for the communities in which they operate. Now that's, that's ethics. Now on to morals. Morals tend to be more personal. We often refer to um, such a thing as an internal moral compass whether someone has one or not, a conscience, perhaps. It's sort of a, an internal detector of good versus evil, a detector of right versus wrong, which is internal. Interestingly, uh, many scholars point to a difference between Hegel and his predecessor Kant on this, um, on morals as opposed to ethics. The basic argument is that Hegel may have disagreed with some parts of Kant's categorical imperative, uh, and the categorical imperative is a personal moral framework. Simply put, what Kant is saying by this is that it's the intention of the will that counts, not the behavior. And that one should act in a manner that we would want everyone to act in a similar situation and similar circumstances toward all of the people, whether you can make it uh, universal. For example, it, it would not be um, moral if, if one gave to charity to garner a favor from someone. The act may be good, but the intention may not be. Whereas if, if one gives to charity for the good it does, that's a good intention. So that would be a good moral act. Another 
possible criticism of Kant's categorical imperative is the question of lying. Is it ever justified to lie? Kant was actually challenged on this, and he, he said that if the lie represents a goodness, such as lying to a murderer where their potential victim can be located, then that's a good thing. Hegel, on the other hand, is thought to identify morals more in the community and in society, and that these can change over time, and that he believed that morals are to be found in the ethical order of the community. However, uh, this is a very complicated issue. I did a lot of research on this, and I was going to focus on this more during this episode. However, uh, I just found too many different takes on this, uh, and I believe Hegel scholar Alan Wood sums it up very well. I quote, It is a commonplace that Hegel is a proponent of what he calls ethical life, Zittlichkeit in German, and a critic of what he calls morality, uh, morality in German. Common interpretations contrast Zittlichkeit, whose ordinary German sense implies the morality of custom and tradition, with morality as an individualistic and rationalistic stance, which might be critical of commonly accepted social practice. Hegel is supposed to be a proponent of the former and a foe of the latter. Like many commonplace thoughts, this one contains a grain of truth but it oversimplifies and distorts that truth. When people allow such a commonplace to shape their thinking about the topic, it can badly mislead them. So the difference between Kant and Hegel in morals and ethics is certainly not clear-cut, so I'm just going to leave that where it is and move on. Now, a major part of this episode is going to be dealing with the work of uh, philosopher Alastair McIntyre. He was Scottish-born, 20th century philosopher, still alive, and he wrote um, on moral philosophy. He is currently Professor Emeritus at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana, USA. He was influenced by Hegel and edited several collections of articles about Hegel, which is interesting. And he also takes a historical approach to, to viewing morals, much like Hegel does toward history, and as Thomas Kuhn did in his Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which we discussed in a previous episode in a lot of detail. However, McIntyre takes a more developmental approach to change than Kuhn did, and uh, then that the new incorporates the old rather than overturning it. Uh, but that being said, there's still much of agreement in their, in their general outlook. His major work, McIntyre's major work, is a book called After Virtue. It was published in 1981, and many consider it to be one of the most important works in moral and political philosophy in the 20th century. In a nutshell, McIntyre believes that the moral philosophy since the Enlightenment is not meaningful that it is not rational, that it is empty. Those are pretty strong statements. He believes the reason for this is, um, is simply that the morals of the Enlightenment lack purpose, teleology. And he cites Aristotle as providing such a rationale for a moralistic outlook. The ancients believed that humans had a purpose and they needed to work on that purpose. It does not come just by being born. The Greek word, uh, eudaimonia is often used to describe this. Aristotle used it to signify the, the greatest good. And in a sense of purpose of life, it's uh, the effort to achieve the greatest good, to 
to make yourself what you what you should really be. And it's not just feeling good or feeling happy. It's uh, fulfilling a, 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 a meaningful goal. Along these lines, I asked my children what morality means compared to ethics to them. They're growing now. And my son wrote, very interestingly, and I quote, to believe in morality, one must believe that human existence has a meaning or purpose beyond survival. Morality is spiritual because it requires a faith in the existence of goodness or even godliness. That sums it up pretty well. So what happened in the Renaissance, in the Enlightenment, to change all this? The reason? One reason. The scientific revolution. As the Enlightenment picked up speed, driven by the printing press, as we've discussed, evolutionary biology also became to be viewed more favorably. In 1809, Lamarck proposed the theory of transmutation of species, and many Islamic scholars did as well before this, as a matter of fact. Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published in 1859, and that changed everything. What was remarkable about Darwin was that his system was, was purposeless. Previously, um, many could accept the concept of uh, the transmutation species of evolution, but they believed that there was, it was, there was a purpose in, that guided it somehow, whether that was God or, or something else. Darwin made that thinking obsolete. He claimed it was all random. Species evolved due to genetic accidents that made some more adaptable to the environment and allowed them to live where others died off. That was the big change. So now, purpose and meaning had no real place in our being anymore. That was a very significant event. Um, and it leads us to today, the biologist and leading atheist Richard Dawkins talks about life being just uh, only the, the result of a selfish gene. No thinking going on, no morals, no purpose. He also claims that the biggest problem with religion and philosophy today is the concept of purpose. So that's it in a nutshell. McIntyre argues that this materialistic, random world pulled the rug out beneath morals. Now there was no reason underpinning it. There was no purpose. Sure, morals persisted as customs and habits, but McIntyre claims they were now empty. There was now no rationale for them. As he says, all there remained was a vocabulary list with few definitions and no context. And there was another problem, McIntyre points out, and that is the focus on the individual. This makes one person's morals no better or worse than any others, because there's no standard. There's only how one feels. And there's a term for this, emotivism. Let me read a quote from Jay Gupta from an article he wrote that appeared in um, Telos. I quote, The term emotivist self is derived from emotivism, a philosophical doctrine that has been variously articulated by philosophers since the 17th century. David Hume, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Charles Stevenson are three particularly influential exponents. In broad strokes, it is the idea that all evaluative judgments, and in particular moral judgments, are merely expressions of attitude or feeling. As such, they do not enjoy any rational basis. Thus, no moral judgment is any more valid than any other, 
There are no criteria available to determine such validity. It follows that moral debate is interminable, since there can be no, in principle, no rationally arrived at conclusion, end quote. Now let me quote McIntyre himself from the book After Virtue. I quote, The specifically modern self, the self that I have called emotivist, finds no limits set to that on which it may pass judgment, for such limits could only derive from rational criteria for evaluation. And, as we have seen, the emotivist self lacks any such criteria. Everything may be criticized from whatever standpoint the self has adopted, including the self's choice of standpoint to adopt. It evades any necessary self-identification with any particular contingent state of affairs. It has no necessary social content and no necessary social identity. It can be anything, can assume any role or take any point of view because it is in and for itself nothing, end quote. And later in the book, he states, I quote, this individualism actually leads to a loss of self. The emotivist self becomes more abstract, not tied to anything. From the degree of contrast and indeed the degree of loss that comes into view if we compare the emotivist self with its historical predecessors, end quote. And these historical predecessors were the tribe, as he calls it, brother, cousin, grandson, member of this household, that village, this tribe. The tribe is identifying one's role, beliefs, goals, and morals. Now, we talked last episode about how the left brain print culture focused on the individual. And the rights of the individual were obviously very important in, in, in the uh, Reformation, such as in the Napoleonic Code. As McIntyre is saying, the individualism pertained to morals as well. Philosophy itself picked up this with existentialism. Existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said that individuals must make their own essence and create their own subjective moral standards, leading us to what is sometimes called moral relativism. Philosopher Alan Bloom wrote a very successful book about this in the 1980s called The Closing of the American Mind. It was actually a bestseller. It's pretty good for a philosopher. In it, he blames universities for creating an open environment where moral relativism reigns. This is seen culturally in the rugged individual hero, also in many other um, cultural um, arts, including rock and roll, with with its personal liberation and, and freedom. As an aside, it's interesting to note that Alan Bloom edited and wrote the introduction to Alexander Kojev's book, An Introduction to the Reading of Hegel, which we have discussed here many times. So, is this where we stand today? Moral relativism is, is what's going on? No. An article in The Atlantic from March of 2016 claimed the death of moral relativism. It points to cultural landmarks that support right over wrong, many such ones. In films, just for example, the the many Batman movies and also the, all the Marvel movies, it's a clear distinction between right and wrong. In this article, they also mention a David Brooks a New York Times editorial column, which notes a, a shame culture that is now um, around. The article states, 
A culture of shame cannot be a culture of total relativism. One must have some moral criteria for which to decide if something is worth shaming. And Brooks says, some sort of moral system is coming into place. Some new criteria now exists, which people used to define correct and incorrect action. And these are not the necessarily the old morals. Um, there are, uh, are old values, um, but but there's an emphasis on on, on uh, for example, um, recognition and respect. This is a critical part of the new tribalism. So is tolerance and inclusion, um, equal rights. Now it, it's interesting that this. Atlantic article was back in March of 2016. This is before Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. It was before Trump's election in the United States. This shame culture, uh, this moralistic shame culture, has only dramatically accelerated since then. Uh, you all, I'm sure, are aware of it. Shaming has now become canceling. Enter the cancel culture. We've discussed how the new global electronic village is turning away from individuals to tribalism, the new tribalism. And in addition to everything else we covered last episode, it's also transforming morality, which we were talking about in this episode. Individuals now who found their identity lost in the old um, individualistic culture are now finding their identities found in their tribes. And these tribes have a morality. It's often, though, that the morality of one tribe is pitted against the morality of another tribe. There's not a universal morality here. It's tribal. And there can be a lot of conflict between tribes, as we discussed last time. Today's political environment is a great example. Some say the United States is the most polarized it's been since the Civil War in the United States. Um, others compare it to the, the, the extreme generational gap of the late 1960s. But what is fueling it is not respectful disagreement. It is moral outrage. Morals, the new morals are driving this outrage. In today's tribalism, as we discussed last episode, you're not only judged for your actions, but also for your words and your thoughts. In the U.S., friends on different sides of the political spectrum are no longer friends. And I suspect this is true in much of the world. And there's another side to this. It's unfortunate that, that, that this, the new tribalism can often override the, the, this, the good moralistic reasons behind them and become more focused on hatred of the other tribe rather than a celebration of their own moralistic beliefs. It's interesting aside here, I attended a psychological seminar many years ago where the, the instructor actually took part in the freedom rides in the South in the 60s, for civil rights, for the rights for blacks to vote. He noted that although they were down there to fight hatred, one did not actually have to leave the Freedom Rider bus to see blind hatred. There was massive hatred of the Freedom Riders toward the racists. If He said if one wanted to study hatred alone, one didn't have to leave the bus. His point, obviously, was not that the Freedom Riders were just as bad as the racists. Obviously, they weren't. They had right and history on their side, of course. But the hatred on both sides was shocking. And it's an important concept to, to keep in mind today. Moralists can become very hateful indeed. Now, the, this move from individualism to group tribalism reminds me of a, uh, the final song in the, the musical Pippin 
which is from the early 1970s. You may have seen it. It's done in colleges and high school productions. The last song, the words are just a little bit. Rivers belong where they can ramble. Eagles belong where they can fly. I'm not a river or a giant bird that soars to the sea. And if I'm never tied to anything, I'll never be free. Pippin is saying that he no longer wants to go solo and be a free bird. He wants to be tied to something. This is where he will find his freedom. As I mentioned, McIntyre certainly was influenced by Hegel. And as I said, he even edited some works about Hegel. And he made a key distinction as humans, as they happen to be, as being distinct from humans as they ought to be. And he took this from Aristotle, as we've discussed. Now, as you know, this bears a striking degree of familiarity to Hegel's true infinity, which means going against the given finite circumstances to rise above and make things better. This is true freedom. This is uh, true infinity. And it's such an important concept. We've devoted whole episodes to it and we'll continue to come back to it because it's really the cornerstone of Hegel's philosophy. However, unfortunately, this purpose was mostly lost in the scientific materialism that dawned in the Enlightenment. And it will be interesting to see how this plays out in the fullness of time when the owl of Minerva, as they say, can take flight. Anyway, that's it for this episode. This is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell your friends about this podcast if you enjoy it. And also, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Cunning of Geist. Again, thanks for, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.